we are diving back into this series, God Has a Name. And we're going to kind of close out this portion of scripture in Exodus 34, where we've been kind of camped for the last few weeks. And I just want to read this scripture to start us off today. And we're going to read through the last little portion there that uh, we're going to tackle today. And I'm actually really excited about this message because often when I read this scripture, this is a really hard one for me to understand. There's times that I skim over scriptures and I just sort of get through them and I'm like, God, I don't really understand what you're trying to say here. Um, but as I said a couple of weeks ago, um, I'm okay to live in that balance and to actually hold my questions and my uncertainty and the things that I don't really understand or know and in one hand and be able to hold the character and nature of God and the fact that God is compassionate and loving in the other hand and go, you know, these things don't really measure up. They don't feel like they're making sense. But in the middle of that, I can have faith and believe that God will reveal himself, will re reveal his true character and his true nature and will come through in the end. So let's dive into the scripture and just read through it once again. In Exodus 34, um, starting in verse 5, it says this, The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And that's where Andrew left off last week. So we're going to pick up here where he says this. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children into the third and fourth generations. And then it says this. Even though that portion of scripture at the end there may be really hard for us to understand. And at first glance, it feels like God is unjust and unfair, that he is laying the sins of the parents upon the children. When we look at that, we think, how could a loving God do that? But Moses didn't question this at all. In fact, Moses, it says, immediately threw himself on the ground and worshipped God. There was something about these words that Moses understood, and he actually, it, it caused a spontaneous response of worship to the Lord. And so I want to dig into it a little bit more and see if there's something that God wants to reveal to us today. Because even though this seems inconsistent, God's character never changes. We talked about that early in this series, that God doesn't change. He is consistent. He is and always will be loving, compassionate, and gracious above all else. And so how does this fit in when it seems unfair, unjust, and, and maybe even just plain mean? How do we wrestle this through? It's not. It's not that God is that way. It just means there has to be another aspect of his nature that I don't understand yet and that I need to learn more about. So as we sit in this balance, I want to jump in and unpack what this scripture is actually really talking about. So let's dig a little bit truth, a little bit, let's dig a little bit deeper into these truths today together. It says that God is a God who forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. So God is forgiving. It is his very nature to be forgiving. And it, it lists sin, iniquity, and rebellion as they're just really three different words for different types of sin. And what I feel like he's saying here is like, I forgive it all. There's nothing that you could do that I do not forgive. When you are rebellious and you do not follow the law, if you do not 
do what I ask you to do and your heart is rebellious and you turn away, I can still forgive you. If you're filled with sin and iniquity, that word iniquity is, is really just another word for sin or um, things that we've done wrong in our lives. And so he's saying, I'm covering it all. I forgive it all. There's nothing that you could do that could ever be beyond my forgiveness for you. I want to forgive you. I, I long to forgive you. And God doesn't reluctantly forgive our sins. He's not you know, like thinking about it, like, oh, well, maybe I will. He's not reluctant to forgive our sins, the sins that we commit against him and, and against others. He actually forgives us eagerly because it is a manifestation of his character. It's who he is and what he is like. In the book of Micah, chapter 7, verse 18, it says, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. Andrew talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that God, God can get angry at sin. And, and anger is actually um, a healthy and natural response to sin. If someone was hurting your children, if something was hurting your children, a natural healthy response would be anger as it is with God. But he's slow to anger. And this, this says he delights to show mercy. He delights in giving forgiveness to us and showing mercy to us. It's not a heavy burden for him. The word forgive in this context actually means to pick up or lift up and carry away or to bear another's burden, to take that burden upon myself. He took it all for us. He lifted it and carried away on the cross. He bore the burden of our sin and he took it upon himself. That is the God that we serve. In Isaiah 53, verses four through six, this is a prophetic word talking about Jesus. If you've been in church anytime, you've heard this passage of scripture before. Listen to the words and the context of this. Surely, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, that's talking about Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus was happy to bear our sins. It's the, the Bible says for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. It was his privilege to bear our sin, knowing that it would be the way to our freedom and forgiveness and our peace and reconciliation with God. And I wanna talk for a minute here about the difference between discipline versus punishment. Because we see these words in this scripture, but I think we have uh, a different connotation or a different um, interpretation of these words in our modern culture. And so I wanna talk about this for a minute because I think this is really, really important. If you do a word study in both the Hebrew and the Greek, so Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek, if you do a word study on that, those words, either punishment or discipline, they're often the same root word. They're the same word, but they're translated as correction, instruction, discipline, or punishment. It's kind of all the same thing. 
But what happens is our interpretation in our modern day context is really important because those words matter. And when we think about the fact that God disciplines us, we would understand discipline in a different sort of way than we would punishment. They're not equal in our minds. And I want to just walk through this a little bit because I'm telling you, this is really important. I talk to a lot of people who feel like God is punishing them and he is not. So discipline done in love is meant to bring about correction and change in our lives. It helps a child grow and thrive as they're growing up. It helps to position them to stand on their own and to make better choices in the future. It helps us to understand right from wrong and discipline will keep us from turning towards the things that are going to hurt us. Discipline is for our good. It is a correction. It is like a course correction for us to bring us back into the things that are actually good for us. And so God disciplines us as a loving father. And the scriptures in Hebrews 12, it actually calls this a word of encouragement. That this should be so encouraging for you that God loves you so much, he would discipline you. He loves you so much that he would correct your course when you go astray because he wants what's best for you. He wants you to thrive. He wants you to walk in everything that he has called you to. And so he will discipline us to get us back on course and to get us moving in the right direction, to get sin out of our lives, to get us um, moving and growing in a way where we're thriving in his kingdom. So God disciplines us and that should be encouraging to us. That's a good word for us, the Bible says. I want to throw out a couple of scriptures. I don't have time to read them all, but if you want to read more about God's discipline, you can find it in Deuteronomy 8.5, in Proverbs 3.12, in Hebrews 12.6, and in Revelation 3.19. All scriptures that talk about that God disciplines us and that that's a good thing for us. So God loves you so much, he will discipline you in order to help you. But not all hardships and suffering are discipline. We are just broken people in a broken world. And I feel like we need to learn to make that distinction to be able to tell between discipline and between stuff that is just suffering, um, that is just the result of our broken world and broken people colliding with other broken people. Stuff just happens. It isn't all discipline. It isn't all the enemy chasing us down. A lot of times it's just us. And it's just our brokenness colliding with someone else's brokenness. And so we need to learn to be able to decipher that. Punishment is viewed very differently, though. In our context, we would see um, punishment, and in our understanding, is having to pay the penalty for what we have done. That's a little bit different than discipline. People believe that the difficult circumstances in their lives is really God punishing them for some past sin. Now listen to me, I I talk to people all the time and, and I hear these things over and over and over in conversations that I have. When people hit hard times in their life, they come against suffering and hardship, they often come into my office and they say, God must be punishing me. There's no other explanation for all of these terrible things that have happened in my life. God must be punishing me. And I'll ask them this question. What is he punishing you for? I just ask them outright. What do you think he's punishing you for? And here's here's the answer. There's two answers. I get the same two answers all of the time. Either they bring up a really deep, heavy, big, 
past sin that they haven't been able to move on from. Or they just say, I don't know, but it must be something. So that indicates to me that this is not um, an appropriate response. It's actually shame that the enemy is heaping onto people's lives to make them believe something other than what is the truth, that Jesus bore our punishment and went to the cross for us. It is a lie of the enemy meant to keep us in shame. The idea behind this thinking is that we are, God is somehow making us pay for a past sin. That is not scripture and it is not of God. And if you have done something in the past, hey, I've done stuff in the past too. I have things that I regret, things that I feel sort of hung over my life for a really long time but I had to understand God's forgiveness. If you are repentant of sin, if you have repented for sin from your past, God is no longer punishing you for that. The Bible says that when, when we ask for forgiveness, he is quick to forgive. He wants to forgive us and he removes our sins far away. He doesn't look at that anymore. He looks at us through what Christ has done. But we tend to just sort of suffer through things. And so when hard times come and we believe that it's we're being punished, we're going to sit in that and suffer through it because we think for some reason we deserve it. So then we stop praying, we stop fighting, we stop, you know, reaching out to other people and we just sit and wallow in it because we think that we deserve it. That is a tactic of the enemy. That is shame right there keeping you from actually applying and appropriating the victory of Christ over your life and walking in freedom and victory. That is a plot of the enemy that we are exposing here today. So we pull away from God, we, we stop going to him, we, we stop praying and we just curl up in a ball basically and say, well, I guess I just deserve this. That isn't the heart of God at all. If you have repented for your sin and you walk in humility and surrender before the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven. And we live under the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't get what you deserve. And that is the gospel message. That is the amazing message of Christ that we get to lean into, that we don't get what we deserve. We get what he has given to us. That's the whole message of the gospel. No matter what you've done, you don't get the punishment that you deserve. You get life more abundantly. Now, I'm not saying that discipline is light or easy. The discipline, discipline of the Lord will actually hurt sometimes. It's actually hard. When sin is exposed in our lives, it's going to hurt. It's going to be hard to walk through it. But if our hearts are tender and surrendered to the Lord, if we are not rebellious against his discipline, if we submit to it, it will change us. It will reset our inner world and our inner life. It will adjust our thoughts and our motives and our attitudes in a way that is consistent and congruent with the kingdom of God. It will align us with his plans and purposes for our lives, and it will bring us closer to his heart. That's what discipline will do. It will correct all of those things. It will bring us back to the heart of God. It will set everything right. Discipline will always drive us closer to God. Punishment always drives us away. Punishment is driven by fear. We read this in 1 John 4, 13, 18. I don't have my glasses on. I try to make the type really big on my notes so I don't have to wear my glasses, but I think I need to bump it up um, <laughs> a size or two. 
First uh, John four eighteen says this: There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. <laughs> the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Listen, if you understand how much God loves you, you would never believe that He is punishing you. That's what that scripture is actually saying. You're afraid that you're being punished because you don't understand his great love for you. You don't understand what he has done. You don't understand the, this, this great gospel that we don't get what we deserve, that Jesus took our sin and he bore the burden of our sin and shame on the cross so that we could be free. Jesus, Jesus was not the first to introduce the idea of forgiveness. God is a forgiving God who loves his children, and that's why he sent Jesus. I think sometimes we think, you know, the God of the Old Testament is like this, this angry old father who's like losing his temper all of the time, and Jesus is like the cool kid who walks on the scene and goes, hey, Dad, let's not hurt everybody. Like, let's be cool and give grace. That's not how it was at all. God said to Moses way back in Exodus, I am a God who forgives. And it was what drove Moses to his knees in worship. And he said, then forgive us, the Israelites, your people. Forgive us for what we have done and walk with us. We don't want to be without your presence. If you are a forgiving God, forgive us. Moses knew about God's forgiveness long before Jesus ever walked on the scene. And some of the uh, great writers of the Old Testament also understood God's heart of forgiveness. In Psalm 103, starting in verse 6, it says this. And notice as I read this, the references back to Exodus 34. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses. Remember, we talked about that several weeks ago when we started to unpack this uh, scripture in Exodus 34. It was because Moses was questioning God and asking to see the glory of God and asking to know the heart of God that God actually revealed himself on Mount Sinai to him. So it says, he made known, to, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to his people of Israel. The Lord is, listen, he says it here again, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Here's the best part. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He forgives. He doesn't punish us according to what we have done. We don't get what we deserve. We get what Jesus gives. With that in mind, I want to tackle this last little bit of scripture, this hard part for us to understand, the part that says this, he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. God is not contradicting himself here. So let's unpack this. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. This means he will not by any means clear the guilty unless we repent and come under the shed blood of Christ. That is the only way to receive forgiveness. Yahweh is forgiving by nature, but he is also just. So he doesn't let the guilty off the hook. He requires that we accept the forgiveness that is available to us through Jesus Christ. So repentance is the key here. If your heart is soft and surrendered to God, 
If you uh, repent every time he convicts you of sin, if you're trying to do your best and walking in surrender to him and, and willfully in every way in your life trying to serve and, and, and do your best for him, you're okay. I meet so many people who are repenting for the same sins over and over and over and they don't feel like they're ever really forgiven or free. That's the enemy just trying to heap that shame on us. You are free from your sin and you're free to live the life that God calls you into. That's one of your benefits of being his child. So repentance is key. And when we recognize our sin, that gives us the opportunity to walk in the freedom that God freely gives. But there are people who do not accept or want forgiveness or freedom. There are people who would rather stay in their sin then walk in the light and freedom. And there are people in the church who have been in the church for years who have secret sin in their life that they're unwilling to repent for or things going on in their inner world that they haven't yet addressed. And so God doesn't just overlook those things. If we're not repenting and doing the work to to um, transform, have our inner world transformed by the Spirit of God and, and to be changed by Him, then we're going to fall into the consequences of sin. So listen, when a parent sins, there are consequences for their children's future. We cannot escape the reality that sin runs in the family. Look, you cannot have an anger problem that you let go unmanaged in your life for a really long time and expect that it's not going to affect your kids. You can't be a kind of person who lives in total control and expect that's not going to affect your children or someone who lives in fear and anxiety and expect that's, that's your, your children are never going to notice. They live in the same house as you. Of course, they're going to notice and it's going to affect them as they're growing up. If you keep thinking you'll do better next time and you keep just justifying and overlooking your sin and you're not actually dealing with the issues and getting to the heart of the matter and bringing this stuff out before God, it is going to affect the people around you. That is just the nature of sin. It's infectious and it affects everything that it touches. If you fail to deal with the sin in your life, it will have an effect on your family and your children, whether that's fear, control issues, addictions, mindsets about money and poverty, um, relationship issues, sexual sin. And sometimes we can look back in our family line and we can see where generation after generation after generation is affected by certain kinds of sin. We see this historically in the Bible as well. I don't have time to get into all of, of the, the examples of that in the scripture, but you see it in generations throughout the Bible too and how sin pops up in people's life and it doesn't always look exactly the same, but it is the effects of what's being passed down from generation to generation. Your sin will affect the people around you, whether you realize it or not. It's not just your problem. You can't just hide, hide it and pretend it's not impacting anybody else. This is why we need to be ruthless about eliminating sin from our lives because it's hurting the people around us. But we have a choice and God never overrides our free will to choose to repent and receive his mercy. He will never override that. We have to choose. 
Repentance. We have to choose to receive his conviction and walk in repentance in our lives. And when we repent, we repent, God responds with mercy. But if we don't repent, God steps back and he allows us to make our own choice to stay in sin. And he allows the consequences of our sin to be our punishment. Because listen, the consequences of sin are punishment enough. Sin, God is forgiving, but sin is not. Sin is merciless and a cruel master. God isn't punishing you. Jesus took your punishment to the cross, and I believe the consequences of sin are punishment enough. So God just kind of takes his hands off and he goes, okay, if you don't want to repent, if you don't want to listen to me, you go ahead, do it your way. But it's going to have an impact on the people around you. But I believe this is actually kindness. And I know that this is hard to maybe get our head around. And it's hard to grasp that it's a kind God who would let us walk away into our sin. But here's what I believe his heart is for us. That as we walk fully into that sin, as we, we bear the weight of the consequences of our sin fully, when we feel the full weight of it, that it will turn us back towards him in repentance. I believe he allows us to carry the full weight of our unrepentant sin so that we will recognize our need for mercy and repent. The Bible says it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. It's always his kindness for us. And sometimes we actually need to feel the weight uh, feel the impact of that sin in our life so that we will actually ruthlessly eliminate it from our lives and clear the way for the coming generations. Because God is just, he will allow the sting of sin in every generation and he will not stop until someone breaks and responds to his mercy and that sin is completely eradicated from your family line. That's what God is looking for. And I feel like God's, God's justice isn't about retribution. That's the way we see justice. Justice for us is about retribution, but God's justice is about restoration. Remember, you don't get what you deserve. You get all things made new. And that's the good news of the kingdom of God. That God isn't about retribution. He's not about making you pay for what you've done. He's about restoration and making peace with you and allowing you to walk in the freedom that he provides. I want to read a quote from the book that we've been following along with. God has a name by John Mark Comer. He says this. I'm going to read this quote for you because it's, it's really epic. The cross is a place where justice and mercy collide. The reconciliation of God's mercy and justice in the death of Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's character. The tension is finally resolved. It is in God's nature to show mercy and forgive, but it's also his nature to deal with sin. And these two parts of God's person seemingly at odds for so many years finally come together on the cross in beautiful harmony. In spite of all the talk in the Bible of Yahweh's wrath, nobody ever, ever accuses Yahweh of being mean. Yes, he gets angry. 
but he takes that anger on himself. He doesn't make you and me pay for our sin. He pays for it with the currency of his own blood. That is powerful. That is the power of the gospel message. And when we believe that God is punishing us, we don't live in the freedom and the fullness of that message. Notice the difference back in Exodus 34 between these two phrases. He maintains love to a thousand generations, but he brings consequences of sin to the third and fourth generation. What a difference. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. God's mercy will always triumph. He's longing, I believe, longing to bring that blessing for a thousand generations. But you have a part to play in it. You have to surrender to the work he wants to do in your life. And when you choose to repent and receive God's mercy, he teaches you how to live free from that sin, creating a ripple effect that impacts thousands for generations. How incredible is that? You have the power within your own life, the life, this short life that you live here on this earth to impact thousands of generations with the blessing of God. When you turn from sin and turn from those things that are eating away at your family line, you have the choice to minimize, disregard, and downplay the sin in your family line or to be the one who stands up and says, no more. No more, Satan. No more of this in my family line. I'm drawing a line in the sand and something is about to change. The best thing that you can do for your kids and your family is to ruthlessly eliminate sin from your life and be surrendered fully to God. It's not just about you. When my parents got saved later in life, they began to change their lives and they didn't always get everything right, but I knew I knew this one thing, that they wanted to please God more than anything else. And they would do anything they knew how to do when they knew how to do it to please God and to run after his plans for their lives. They had faith to believe. So as parents, we don't always have to get it right, but we have to be soft and surrendered and willing and running after the things of God. That's the best thing that we can do for our kids to teach them. They're going to have their own stuff. Okay. Everybody has stuff. They're going to have their own baggage. They're going to have their own stuff. They're going to sit in my office one day and say, Hey, my mom, this, or my dad, that they are, it, it, it's inevitable because we're all sinful, broken people. But when they do give them the example of being the kind of person who runs towards the heart of God and accepts everything that he has for you and applies it passionately to your life. Leave that example for them so that when they come against issues in their life, they'll do the same thing. The best thing you can do is set a good example of what it looks like to walk with God. When we look at sin, we see destruction and defeat and death. But when God looks at sin in our life, I believe he sees an opportunity because he simply sees a place where his redemption hasn't had a chance to work yet. He sees a place where his power hasn't had a chance to work yet. He sees a grave, but he knows there's a resurrection on the other side. God sees with the eyes of unlimited potential because God sees through the eyes of the eternal. We see through the temporal. We see only what is right in front of us. Are, how are we going to get through the day? What 
are the things we're gonna take in? How are we gonna survive today? We look at everything that is so temporal, but God is looking at things in an eternal perspective. He sees the bigger picture here. And that's why I think it's okay for him to let us sit in something that's hard, to let us feel the weight of our sin in a moment with the hope that we will turn towards his redemption and peace and healing and reconciliation and all of the stuff that he freely has for us, that we'll turn towards his mercy when we feel the weight of that. We don't want to feel the weight of it. We don't want other people to feel the weight of it. We don't think that that's fair. But God's saying, I have a bigger picture in mind. I see thousands of generations blessed by what you're going to walk through right now. And yeah, it's going to be hard. And yeah, it's going to be a struggle to get that sin out of your life and out of your family line. And yeah, you may have to stand up and declare. And you may have to fight the devil a little bit. And you may have to apply some things to your life. And it might be hard, but it's going to be worth it. Because you are going to change lives for a really long time. You have the power to do that. God sees more than we can see. He sees what he has planned for the hearts of those who are turned towards him. And he is just and he will make all things right in the end. But remember his greatest quality, the one he wanted us to remember most about himself, is that he is compassionate and gracious and loving. He wanted us to know, he emphasized the fact that he was compassionate and gracious. He wanted us to know that he is a God who loves his children and acts on their behalf. So I have a challenge for you at the end of this message today. I want you to, to take an inventory. And if you're taking notes or, you know, pull out your phone or grab a notepad right now, because I want you to write this down. We need to take an inventory of our family history and our family line and what's going on in our world. And, and you, you may know in your family, you know, my grandmother had anxiety, my mother had anxiety, or, you know, my dad was angry, my grandfather was angry, all the men in my family have been angry men. Whatever it is, addictions, sexual promiscuity, whatever things that you see in your family line and you go, oh yeah, like that's come down generation after, that's just who we are. We need to begin to recognize those things and actually break them off of our family line through prayer with God. And all it takes is the awareness of recognizing it, bringing out in, into the light before God and praying it out of your life and then continuing to apply the word of God and continuing to apply whatever you need to apply to be free um, from whatever that sin actually has. And so we want you to take an inventory of your life and your family line. And I want you to ask yourself these three questions. What do I need to stop? What do I need to continue? And what do we need to start in our family line? So what do I need to stop? That's the sin, that's the stuff that's going on that needs to be cut off and stopped in your family line. What do I need to continue? These would be things that are actually blessings. My mom was a very encouraging woman. She encouraged everybody that she came into contact with. She just spoke words of life over everybody. I want to continue that in my family line. So I actually make an effort to continue that and to pray it over my children and to believe that my children will be encouragers and that they will be the ones who speak life over others. I pray that. Those are things I want to continue. 
And whenever we stop something, we can also start something new. So if there are things that you are cutting off, things that you are stopping in your family line, I want you to also start something new. What is something that you can start? Maybe it is speaking words of life over people and that every day you're just gonna take the opportunity to speak something life-giving over another person or over your children, to teach them how to do it. What, what is something that you can add into your family line? Maybe we're gonna have a new attitude about finances. Maybe we're gonna take on some, some new attitude about our relationships or new behaviors in our relationships. Maybe there's a new work ethic that we need in our family. Maybe it has to do with addictions or whatever else. There's something that you wanna add in, a blessing you wanna add into your family that you want to continue for generations. So what am I gonna stop? What needs to continue and what do I want to start in my family line so that thousands will be blessed through my marriage and my family and my life? I hope this message was encouraging for you today. And at the end here, I just want to actually pray over you and over your children and pray a blessing for the generations to come. So Father God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the, this encouragement that you discipline the ones you love, but we don't have to be fearful of punishment, that that's not something that you do. You bore our sin on the cross and you took the punishment on yourself, that we can be corrected and loved by you and make changes in our life that will impact generations. What a powerful thought that is for us today, Lord Jesus. I pray that as each person takes this seriously and looks at this stop, continue, and start, and begins to make lists of things, I pray that by the Holy Spirit you would bring stuff out into the light. I pray that things would come up that maybe you've never considered before, that would come into the light so they can be healed by Jesus and transformed in your family line. And I just pray over our children and the next generation generation that they would know what it means to seek the heart of God and to see their lives changed and transformed by his power. Even when we don't get it right, God, I pray by your mercy, by your mercy that you would bless the next generation with a heart after you. Father, where we have failed, I pray that you would step in in your kindness and compassion and mercy and that you would turn the generation below us, our kids, towards your heart once again. Father, I just thank you for that. I pray over every home where there are children or loved ones who are not serving the Lord and we call them into the kingdom of God. We ask by your mercy that by your spirit you would prompt them, that you would woo them to your heart with your love. You are a good God and we expect good things from you. We lay all this in your, your hands and we just thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.